happening? How y'all doing today? Hope you're doing great. Um, just wanted to uh, divert your uh, attention back to our YouTube channel again. We dropped our first full-length film here at Seek Outside last week. Um, me and Austin went uh, turkey hunting, took some e-bikes up. Uh, Zach was filming that. Did a great job editing, all that good stuff. So make sure you all check it out. And we'd love to hear your comments on it. Um, you know, whether it's commenting on the YouTube channel or just sending us what you're what you're thinking, uh, we want to know. It's our first one. We want some good feedback. So um, please go check that out. We'd really appreciate it. Other than that, we're coming up on our 100th episode of the podcast. And I think we want to do some sort of call-in type situation for folks. So what we're asking y'all to do is either DM us on Instagram or send us an email to podcast at seekoutside.com. And what we're looking for, I think, is if you got a, a frightening story uh, that happened in the woods, kind of like what we were describing on the, the last podcast or a couple episodes ago, um, you know, something spooky that happened to you in the woods, um, or it could be just a general question could be about our personal lives. It could be about whatever. Seek outside. Um, doesn't have to be seek outside related. Um, but yeah, just send those in to us. Type them. And then we're going to pick some of our favorite ones. And we're going to have you guys call in and ask the question live on the podcast. So um, I think it should be pretty fun. But um, yeah, I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. We got Carlos Gomez, who's a game warden, uh, ex-game warden. Now he works with GNH decoys. Um, and he has some really good game warden stories. I, I always love hearing game warden stories. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoy. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Yeah. So, so what are all those uh, accolades behind you there? Uh, this is. I'm in my office. It's about the only place I can sit quiet and not get disturbed. Um, that's 41 years of game warden work, and uh, there's a little of everything back there. But uh, that this is, I guess, my love me wall, as they call it, the love me wall. You know, somebody's got a place where they hang all their little doodads that they get appreciations for yeah that's awesome what uh, what do you got back there i mean what a well actually hold up let's let's save that maybe maybe give a little uh introduction of yourself carlos and and what you do and who you work for and stuff like that well um you want details or superficial <laughs> well just do a do a quick one and then i kind of want to figure out i want to see what some of those accolades are and then we can we can kind of okay. get into it i appreciate that um, well, I'm Carlos Gomez. Uh, I am a retired game warden from the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. I served 41 years uh, with Oklahoma game wardens, and I finished my career here in Tulsa County. I did seven years in Oklahoma City area and then um, 34 years uh, here in Tulsa. 
And uh, in that time, uh, I served with the National Wild Turkey Federation in a variety of roles with the, with our chapter in Tulsa, Oklahoma, fundraising, holding banquets and gun bashes and things like that, um, putting on a lot of fishing derbies and hunter ed courses and different things like that in the community over those years. And uh, through all of that, not only from my own life and my own activities, I developed a, a passion for teaching. I like to teach and enjoy the subject of conservation. I think it's grossly overlooked by a lot of parents and uh, a lot of folks don't realize the, the, the huge lessons. Even if you're a hunter and a fisherman and you take your youngster hunting and fishing and you hopefully impart some passion to them that they enjoy hunting and fishing, I think a lot of parents are missing an important uh, link to our heritage that comes through conservation. So I think that's a that's a message that I like to preach on. And uh, in my years as a game warden, uh, uh, I got to know uh, a great number of prosecutors in the uh, in the district attorney's office. And um, I don't make any bones about the fact that uh, most of them were totally worthless. And um, uh, you know, I, I won't say they're bad people or I won't say they were bad prosecutors in general. A lot of them just prioritized um, the things that either got them a headline or got them moved up the food chain at the DA's office. And those weren't fish and game cases. Mm. Those typically robberies and murders and, and uh, assault and batteries and rapes and and uh, attempted murders and DUIs and that sort of thing. So when I show up at a DA's office with a case that I developed over months of research and digging and and um, uh, finding all the goods on a guy for poaching, let's say, a half a dozen illegal deer, and I show up at the DA's office, he wouldn't give me the time of day. Um, I used to jokingly say I had to follow him to the urinal just to get a couple of minutes of their time. And, uh, and, and visit with them about my case. And then oftentimes the fish and wildlife cases were, were dismissed with a $100 fine or something when the guy should have been paying tens of thousands of dollars. So the prosecutor's office was basically almost uh, giving uh, approval to wildlife crime. And uh, so you're trying to educate the public and you're trying to get them to care and show them the consequences if they don't care and then your boss, the district attorney, would turn around and almost pat them on the back and, and send them on their way whenever uh, you took them in for, for some medicine. So in that time of meeting all those prosecutors, I had a prosecutor, and I could count them literally on one hand. I had a prosecutor in my 41 years uh, that was worth a darn, and uh, his name was Ray Penny. And that prosecutor... Uh, and I became friends, and I learned a little bit about the man and, and uh, got to know the fact that he was a, uh, an American patriot. He cares a lot about our country. He cares a lot about our heritage, conservation. He's got a passel of kids, and he loves to spend a great deal of time teaching them all the importance of conservation. And then one day, he came to me uh, after I had retired and uh, advised me that he and some fellow 
uh, investors had uh, taken over GNH decoy. They found the opportunity to try to revive this great decoy company that most everyone in Oklahoma is aware of. And here in Northeast Oklahoma, uh, you know, you just about can't drive down the highway and not notice this giant factory that says GNH decoys on the side. And so if you're in the outdoor world, even if you're not in the outdoor world, you, you would have noticed that. So uh, I knew where it was. I knew what it was. I kind of knew a little bit about who it was, but I didn't know anything else detail about the history of that business and that product. And Ray described to me how they were going to revive this company. And he cared so much about conservation and wanted it to be more than just making decoys and making a profit. And he said, I would like our decoy company to create a greater um, presence in the conservation space. And to a game warden of 41 years, Ryan, I, I just couldn't imagine what in the world he was talking about. So um, after some thought and some discussion, I understood that, you know, my job really wasn't to sell decoys. It was to sell conservation. And that's something that I had done for 41 years. So I was all in on that. And uh, having been retired, I didn't want to trade um, the great job that I had for something that tied me down. So he gave me the freedom to, you know, work on the conservation message in all kinds of creative ways. And uh, I'm enjoying myself doing that, and uh, I feel like it's a really important uh, task that that uh, we have. And I say we, that's not just the GNH conservation director, that's everybody that gives a rip about the future of our wildlife and, and hunting in general. Yeah. So that uh, that's where I'm at and uh, what I've been doing now with GNH for about uh, five, six months. Well, that's 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 an awesome introduction, and I think that I think we're going to have a lot to to talk about here um, in the podcast. But I definitely want to kind of cover off on the conservation aspects and the game warden um, perspective first. And you said something interesting there, which was you were kind of taken aback by by Ray approaching you with wanting a a conservation aspect um, to G and H decoys. Is so with your 40 years of experience as a game warden and in that conservation realm. Um, it, have you noticed that, um, that like corporate companies recently have kind of taken, uh, a bigger stand with, with conservation or has that been something that's, that's always been around with companies like GNH or American made companies? Um, is, is conservation, are, are you noticing, uh, an influx for lack of better terms in conservation right now, or has it always kind of been like that or has it kind of gone in waves? What, what have you seen? Well, um, I'll, I'll first, I first got to tell you something about myself, Ryan. And, and, and I know you don't want to go off into this direction. I don't think we do. Uh, and that's politics. Um, we can, we can do I, it if you want. I, uh, I tend to be a bit of a political animal when it comes to having opinions about uh, our country, the direction of our country, the direction of so many legislative issues that control the direction of our country, our economy, and so on. So I touch on that because, um, to me, uh, there's definitely been an, an ebb and flow 
of conservation in the outdoor businesses. And I believe there's a great number of them that are starting to recognize either the importance of conservation partnerships uh, with their product and their business and their constituency, those people that they want spending money on their product and, and partnering with them. Uh, they're starting to recognize that, you know, conservation is an important detail uh, to not be overlooked. But I'm afraid, and I bring up the politic angle because I, I also fear that there are some companies that uh, don't really put their money where their mouth is. They kind of want to talk a little bit of politics, I mean, a little bit of, uh, of uh, conservation, but it, it, it reminded me of the, uh, of the woke crowd, the folks that, uh, that want to donate large sums of money to all kinds of entities because they think it buys them favor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think they're interested maybe in buying favor, um, with a particular group and they, they maybe have lots of extra money to, to burn, you know, if, uh, if Nike, for example, wants to donate millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars to some woke group because they think it earns them favor, um, then, you know, they may do it for that motive. Um, the thing that I'm, you know, I think the jury's still out on many companies, but I will tell you, GNH does not have very much money. It's a new company. It's being revived. Um, it, uh, it, it has a storied history, 88-year history. Uh, I'm sure Ray Penny probably told you some of that, and we can retouch on some of that if you like. But the key, the key factor is this company that is a uh, – where it sits on its present grounds is about 60 years old. And the company is 88 years old. And it's gone through several generations. Uh, it's fought off um, foreign national takeovers. Um, it has struggled through lots of economies. Uh, it started in the Depression. It started when there was no water in Oklahoma. It was Dust Bowl days. Um, so it has gone through a lot of struggles to be where it's at. And that company, to get restarted and and they're still family members still gnh family members involved in the in the structure of it but uh, ray penny and that those investors are the primary guys but I, I say all that because there's a lot of heritage and history with gnh decoy so much so that they were bound and determined to keep it alive and to revive it and to keep it going and that said there's not a lot of extra uh fluffy money like say nike might have to spend on conservation, but yet they're still spending money to have a conservation director and to have a presence in conservation and to contribute to uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife, Oklahoma Department of Wildlife, Texas Limited, Delta, um, Waterfowl, uh, a variety of other uh, agencies is in the works where we will be uh, partnering to try to uh, help youngsters get into waterfowling and have some decoys and understand more about all of our roles in, in, in conservation. Um, you know, Ray feels very strongly about public lands. He knows that, uh, uh, and, and I'll tell you, as a game warden, he's made me think of things that I hadn't thought of before, such as waterfowlers need public lands like n probably no one else. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, with our waters, they're all on public land, right? 
So these these waters where everybody goes and drives their boat and builds their decoy or their their blinds and wants to hunt and, and so forth. They may or may not use our decoys, but they need that public water. So he got involved with BHA. That's where we met you. And uh, feels like uh, BHA's mission is a pretty important mission. And, and that's a pretty um, important role that he plans on, on us being more aggressive in. I know he's donated a lot of merchandise to supply their, their college groups that they have around the country as they develop college groups that are kind of like shooting hunting clubs, you know at colleges and uh he's helping to outfit those guys with decoys too so he you know he's doing everything that he can possibly do to help us spread our presence in the conservation way yeah and and it's it's pretty awesome I, i'm glad that y'all uh kind of dove you know head first into the bhl realm because it's very very uh accepting crowd and there's a lot of duck hunters in it um but so I'm just curious, as a game warden, like, uh, were, were you, did you have a lot of experience with, with duck and waterfowl related uh, cases that you brought to Ray, which was, you know, maybe his reasoning for coming to you for being a director of conservation um, w with a, you know, a, a waterfowl company? Well, I will tell you that uh, I grew up waterfowl hunting in my youth with my dad uh, back in the uh, 20th centuries, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, so I have duck hunted, uh, I should say, almost my whole life. But there's a fast story that, that uh, I don't tell to try to jerk tears. But uh, as a young game warden, I had a Labrador. And I, I grew up with Labradors, raising Labradors, hunting with Labradors. Um, waterfowling with Labradors, and I had a Labrador when I was a new game warden that uh, was my ride along. He he found a lot of hidden birds. He was just a, a, a great partner, uh, just a year old dog, but he was retrieving triples, blind blind triples uh, on hand, on hand commands. He was just an amazing dog, and uh, I didn't have any kids, and somebody stole that dog from my house. And then they oh, put man. the collar on a black mongrel dog and dropped that dog off at the dog pound about a week after he had disappeared. And, uh, of course, I'd been just burning up the road looking for him, you know, for a week and losing sleep about it. And finally got the call from the dog pound, go to the dog pound, and it's some stray dog with my dog's collar on it. And that just took the wind out of my sails yeah. big time. And I didn't duck hunt anymore after that. And, and, you know, I worked duck hunters and as a game warden, you work all kinds of hunters, but, uh, I didn't duck hunt anymore myself with, I would say the passion that I had before that. Um, I do duck hunt with some friends from time to time and that sort of thing. But, you know, as a guest on, on, on a hunt, but, but didn't really pursue it that hard uh, i would honestly say i didn't even buy a duck stamp every year i probably duck hunted probably about three out of every five years and uh, you know like so many people i didn't think about buying a duck stamp unless i was going to go you know hunt migratory birds so i uh i got away from any duck hunting so to speak uh as far as passionate about that uh until probably about five years ago and uh, a few game wardens that like to waterfowl hunt a lot um, 
took me waterfowl hunting and got to like it a little bit. Ray Penny was one of those guys who, who said, hey, go go duck hunting with me. And he's got labs and and we became friends and duck hunted a little bit together. So I kind of was getting back into it a little bit, but still not what you might think. Hey, this guy's conservation director for duck decoy company. That explains it all. Um, really and truly, what, what drew me back into where I'm at is Ray Penny and I got to be friends through the work. And I got to know how passionate he was about conservation that he's the real deal. He was he was a, he was a prosecutor that was so good at his job. He moved up to doing felonies and all this other stuff. You know, the guy that prosecutes fish and wildlife is the guy that's real low on the totem pole. It's kind of a task that no guy wants to do, and almost none of them hunting fish. So they didn't care about it. They just really didn't care about it. But Ray not only cared about it, but after he uh, pr- progressed. Uh, up the totem pole with the DA's office, he called me back and said, hey, when you get an important case, when you get a case that you know really needs some attention, he said, come find me. Because mm. he said, I, I will set my other crap aside and I will prosecute your fish and wildlife cases. So Ray knew that I, I appreciated that and I didn't uh, take advantage of it, but I did use him on some big cases and he could uh, tell you a story or two or I could tell you a story or two about some big cases, but we worked some big cases together. And um, in that time uh, of getting to know Ray, I think he got to see that I was pretty, pretty passionate about conservation. So it was his decision about going there with the with the decoy company. And I don't know how he came to decide I was the right guy, but he knew I was real passionate about conservation. And, you know, yeah, I'd been retired about a year. So it really kind of took me by surprise when he asked. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you were like the, you know, the John Wayne of uh, duck hunting and waterfowl cases, just busting people left and right. (laughs) No, 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 really, really. You know, I had some duck hunters uh, in my area, but uh, I've spent my 41 years in metropolitan areas. Okay. So, you know, there were some duck hunters on on a local river and there's some duck hunters on some ponds and things. But, you know, it's not like I had a giant lake. Uh, with lots of swampy marshes and places where there were lots of duck blinds and lots of duck hunters. Duck hunting wasn't a priority thing in my county. In my county, I will tell you, there's basically uh, a couple of things. And and Ryan, let me uh, give an abbreviation to this right now at this point, uh, point in time. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, you're, you're going to need to edit this stuff out and then come back in in a minute because... I've got to walk over and get a charging cord before I go dead here in a second. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and do that and we'll keep that question where it's at. All right. And I'm powered up, so we should be good now for the rest of the ordeal. So cool. we were talking about... Uh, yeah, just... I, I guess uh, a good question to kind of intro back into that would be, you know, you're working in a more metropolitan area. Right. Um, what were what were the majority of uh, fish and game violations that you were dealing with? Well, the 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 million dollar question that a game warden gets wore out with, and every game warden has that that special question that people just wear him out everywhere he goes. He gets the same question, yeah. and the question I always got around Oklahoma City or Tulsa, where there's millions of people, 
what the heck is a game warden doing in Tulsa? What do you got to do in Tulsa? You know, they look around themselves as concrete and buildings everywhere, right? And the thing that nobody ever thinks about, and, and I presented a paper uh, to a big conference on this once, and it made a lot of folks kind of set up and realize what I was saying uh, was something that hadn't occurred to a lot of them, and that is about a full third of the entire state's hunters and fishermen, a third, lives in the metropolitan area. Hmm. So if you look around in, in Oklahoma, if you look around the state, uh, for example, I'll just use Oklahoma as an example, but I, I, I believe this will be the case in Indiana or wherever else you are, you name any state. Probably, probably here too, Denver. You've got big metropolitan areas. Then you've got, in Oklahoma, we have 77 counties, okay? Of those 77 counties, seven counties make up a third of the state's population, okay? So that might not sound that significant, but when you divide up the other 70 counties that's remaining, each mm -hmm. one of those counties has about 1% per county, 1%. So... Tulsa and Oklahoma City metro areas make up about 30%. You see, 30 30% versus 1%. Yeah. So I've got I've got 30 times as many hunters and fishermen in Tulsa as there are in two counties over where it's rural. Right. And so game wardens are mostly by county, right? Yeah, they're always generally assigned by county and uh you know, it varies in different states, but generally it's it's uh, the number of wardens assigned to a state is determined by either population or square miles. So uh, in Oklahoma, if, if a county is huge and has great hunting potential, fishing potential, there may be three or four officers in that county. Mm. And three or four is not very many, but, yeah. but that's a lot when you consider most counties only have one. Yeah, uh, yeah. A, few, a few of them have too. So back to my point, in Tulsa, having 30%, Tulsa and Oklahoma City, dividing up 30%, let's just give me half, 15%. Oklahoma City has 15%. Okay, so that's dividing us up, and I have 15% of all the hunters and fishermen. That's a large number when you consider two counties over only has 1%. So yeah. Those guys in those counties, they get inundated with hunters and fishermen when it's hunting season. That's where everybody goes to kill their yep. deer. Okay, they, yeah. go, they go out there. But what do they do with the deer after they've killed it? They don't butcher it and eat it in the woods. They bring it back to the metropolitan county. So the, 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 this is the long answer to the question, which is a game warden in a metropolitan area does a lot of knock and talk. There's a okay. whole bunch of guys calling the metro guy who they're like, oh, that, that, that doofus in the city, he doesn't have to work like I have to work. He doesn't have as much to do. Why He just drives around, I don't know, the asphalt jungle. He doesn't get to struggle with all these hunters like I do. But when the landowner gives them a tag number and says it was a red Ford and I heard a gunshot and there's a doe laying out there in my pasture, um, the game warden calls me up. He doesn't drive across the state. 
he calls me up and said, hey, there's a red Ford with this tag number. It checks to Tulsa County. Would you go see if you can make a case on this guy? So I've got to literally go find a stranger, find a truck, find his house, and then confront him. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I'm not yeah. looking at the deer. I didn't see him shoot it. But I've got to say, hey, bub, I need you to confess on this. You know, there's a deer that yeah. got shot. So it's it, I can it, imagine. It, it's a lot of conversation and a lot of interview and interrogation skills. And so a guy like me who blabs a whole lot, they, I get teased for all the talking that I do. But, uh, you know, a lot of talking and interviewing. And, and so a game warden in the metropolitan area does a whole lot of investigations. Nice. So did you encounter a lot more like in working in a metropolitan area did you encounter a lot more of the like not so much fish and wildlife like did you run into a lot more cases where you'd have to bring in sheriffs and absolutely and other law enforcement absolutely officers? and and the guys in the rural counties will tell you that it's getting more and more that way for them as well uh, right. you know everybody's become well aware of the meth problem and the fentanyl problem, and all of the all the the, the drug related issues is, is starting to pop up all across the state. But for for many decades in my career, the Oklahoma City area, the Tulsa area, is where um, you know that's 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 where all the drug traffic was. That's where a lot of the the, the crime stuff went on. And so uh, a game warden might very easily just be investigating a deer and he finds somebody with a you know dealing drugs or something i once yeah. i once walked up to a door just to give you an example i walked up to a door of a house just to knock on a door to ask a question about somebody i was looking for yeah and and, and this this was a this was an investigation this wasn't my bad guy this was a a house that was connected to that and when i knocked on the door the the screen was closed, but the main door was wide open. And I could see through the screen door all the way through the living room, down the hall and into the kitchen. And I'm standing at the door looking. And I see a guy with a Bic lighter heating up a spoon. Oh, man. So, so, so how, how does that work? Because with a game warden, right, you guys have... Um, you have jurisdiction to where you could technically just walk on whatever private property you want right? right so how does that work in a situation like that with a residential home does it does it not apply to a residential home or could you if you wanted to just walk in there because it's within your jurisdiction as a as a uh, fish and game wildlife well officer it, it, or or is it because it's a it's a law that you guys don't deal with you it, it's kind of out of your hands. No, it, it, it can be very complicated, and sometimes, sometimes depending on the situation, Ryan, an officer will will back up and and call help and deal with it that yeah. way. Sometimes we'll back up and get a warrant, and sometimes we'll just say, "Hey, come on out," or we may go all the way in. It's going to depend on: Are we talking felonies? Are we talking misdemeanors? Can we see it yeah. clearly happening in our presence? Uh, you know, what evidence do we have? And um, you know, uh, oftentimes in a lot of those serious drug-related issues and felony-related issues, it's just officer safety that you get a backup and you get help on stuff like that. But game yeah. wardens are accustomed to working by themselves. They're uh, uh, fully 
uh, authorized and empowered police officers, just like state troopers. Um, mm. In Oklahoma, they're directed to enforce fish and wildlife, but they are authorized. So there's a difference between being directed and being authorized. You know, yeah. we're directed to fish and game, but we're authorized to enforce anything. So, oh, really? You know, I've I've probably in my 41 years probably done less than a dozen DUIs. But when I do a DUI, it's because you almost ran me off the road. It's because yeah. you know you 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 were so drunk you ran somebody else off the road. And so it's just a just a responsible decision of public safety that you have to stop somebody because of what they're doing. It's not because I'm out looking for for traffic violations to to have to chase somebody. We we want to focus on fishing game and that's what we try to focus on, but you know, if somebody's doing something so crazy that they're endangering the public, then you know, we're going to have to be involved. Yeah. So was was the Tulsa area and the jurisdiction that you were working was that an area that other game wardens wanted to have was that like a was that like an area where it was like oh i want to get assigned to tulsa or was that the opposite was that like the the shit like the south central chicago i I, I would say 90 percent of the time no game warden wants to be in any metro area yeah, and, yeah and, that's kind of why you get into it. You know, yeah, guys get into it to enjoy the, the the sweet life with the pretty pretty streams and the lakes and and patrolling and protecting pristine habitats and hearing a turkey gobble in the morning and all the things that come with living out in in beautiful areas. That's they're they're no different than you and I. They want to enjoy that stuff, and that's where they generally like to work. Now, about ten percent of the time, there's guys that. You know, the metro area is home to them or their wife has a job there or they want a job there. The economy is usually bustling there. And so there's there's more opportunity there. And and, uh, you know, through the years, there's been somebody that had a had a, a Christian school they wanted their kids to go to or their wife worked mm. here or, you know, something like that. So they want to be not necessarily in the metro county, but they want to be right near it, proximity to it, so that they have it right there at their doorstep, but they don't have all of the other headaches that come with the metro county. Your phone rings nonstop. As I was telling you, as I was telling you about the massive number of sportsmen that, that live here, and I was telling you about how we do all the investigations and knock and talks of a lot of people that have, you know, I could, I could tell you about cases about grizzly bear from Alberta, I've worked. Really? I've worked. Uh, I've worked uh, el- many elk. Wow. Many elk cases from Colorado. Yeah. Um, so uh, I've worked a lot of uh, deer cases with Kansas wardens. So there's people in Oklahoma and Tulsa area that go somewhere, kill something, shouldn't have done it, done it uh, some way with an illegal license or what have you. And so it's it's a standard procedure for the game warden to call the game warden in that in that metropolitan area and said hey i'm going to send you a file here's a guy um he's a doctor he's this or that and he's got a lot of money but he he came up to our country and he did this and that and we need you to go wrestle him around the collar and bring him to justice for him so you know it, it 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 can be fun it can be challenging it can be tricky because you know you get wealthy people and they all have big lawyers and they all know senators and all that kind of crap but but anyway so i've got i'm gonna say out of 77 oklahoma counties i've probably filed charges in easily 55 60 of those counties 
because really? yeah, they they they've gone somewhere from Tulsa to somewhere else, killed something. They killed it over there. Now some and sometimes, you know, if they want to work with me, I can file the charge on them here for possessing an illegal animal in Tulsa. And if you want to work with me, we'll handle it right here in Tulsa. But no, if you don't want to drive all the way, yeah. If you don't, yeah. if you don't want to work with me, you get to drive three hours each way every time there's a hearing uh, at such and such county, and you get to pay your lawyer to drive all that distance, and you get to defend yourself over there in the little podunk courthouse somewhere. But they're wanting to hang you over there, I can tell you. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, it, it it can be persuasive. Guys realize I'll, I'll make them a deal, and they work with us, and we settle it. Nice. So, um, why is it that most fish and game violations end up being, you know, $100 fine, $200 fine, when, you know, it, it seems like a lot of these, these cases you hear, you know, some guy poached X amount of animals and, or like the biggest buck in state history, and it ends up being some slap on the wrist. Why, why is that? That is it because prosecution just doesn't care about it, or... Or is there some other reason why these cases don't get prosecuted correctly? Yeah, you know, in, in some cases, believe it or not, believe this or not, in, in some cases, the statute says the fine shall be, the jail time shall be. And, that, and, mm-hmm. and everybody in, in, uh, in the legal world understands the difference in the wording in the statutes when it says shall Instead of may, it may be. So it removes the discretion from the prosecutor and from the judge. And it says he Mm. shall pay a minimum of $1,000 and spend three days in jail or whatever. So even in cases where where it says shall, the district attorney and the prosecutor says, okay, we're giving you $1,000 and three days in jail, but we're going to suspend all of it. Hmm. So, so it's it's kind of just because it's you know the the prosecutor kind of a, and the and the prosecutor and the judge both have to be committed to conservation, and that doesn't mean uh, be a hanging court. It doesn't mean being a hanging judge, because I will tell you about ninety percent of the cases that go before a judge in my cases, the the uh, the judge would uh, you know a guy might have an attorney, which cost him about as much as his penalties, uh, minus mm-hmm. the jail, if he was going to get jail. But uh, in most cases, um, a guy comes to court without an attorney, and he says, Your Honor, and, and, and this, is, this is probably across the board in most counties, in most uh, courts, Your Honor, I'm guilty, but with an excuse. Yeah. And, and if you'll hear me, Your Honor, I, I, I would like to explain what happened. And then they want to tell you about their starving family, and they want to tell you about, you know, whatever happened, how they were defending themselves against this uh, this deer that was attacking them or whatever, you know. And so in some cases, um, you know, I call it the Dolly Parton defense. Um, the guy that, uh, you know, the guy that, that, that was uh, charged with... Uh, uh, making sexual advances to the undercover policewoman that had the giant rack. And, uh, you know, that's the Dolly Parton defense. The guy said, you know, <laughs> I saw that giant rack and I just went crazy, you know. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's fun. I uh, lost my mind, Your Honor. And, and he's, he, you know, he's trying, <laughs> trying to make the judge understand. But in some cases, uh, the judges are uh, absolutely 
don't care. And in others, they try to do their job and take every case serious. And, and if you're a judge that hunts and fishes, you'll listen to a guy. You'll be reasonable. But, you know, if, yeah. the, if the guy is uh, poaching and doing some damage to the environment and, and so forth, the judge, you know, gives it to him what he should get. And so it, it takes a prosecutor that cares enough to address it take the time to ask the game warden a few questions on the witness stand, give the game warden a chance to, um, you know, articulate to the court, uh, the gravity of what happened. And, and, and the key, here's the key. The key to me is the courts rarely understand the, the conservation story. They don't realize yeah. how far wildlife has struggled to get where it is. All they yeah. know is we see and hear a deer hitting cars uh, on the highway, so we know we got a lot of them. And since we got a lot of them, we don't care. You know, yeah. we, you yeah. know what's what's another deer? So you know, the judge dismisses it as as menial because they don't realize uh, the economic impact that comes with. Um, you know, a deer herd brings in a lot of sportsmen, brings in a lot of dollars, brings in a lot of uh, supplies, a lot of economy to a lot of merchandise and products and companies. You know, <clears throat> I have petitioned our agency to create a two or three or five minute uh, CD, DVD to show the legislators, to show the judges, to show a new district attorney, to show a school, yeah. to show anybody and and in that three minutes, it's a fast and dirty story of we had wildlife, it was great, we destroyed our wildlife, it wasn't great, and now we have spent the last hundred years building it back up to where now we all enjoy lots of fish, we all enjoy lots of birds and, and critters, and there's people that take it for granted and want to just piss it away because we have lots of it. And yeah. so we need the courts to understand the value of those things to the economy, to to businesses, to uh, families. And, you know, when somebody poaches a deer, they're doing more than just killing an animal. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're damaging a lot of opportunities uh, in a lot of ways. And so if the courts would recognize that importance, that value, I think they'd take it more serious on those penalties but again the penalties are serious we've got we've got serious penalties we just have hard time getting prosecutors and judges to see it through yeah well it's interesting too because i mean people like you and i hunted our whole lives we we and especially me my my dad he almost went down a path where he became a, a game warden slash wildlife biologist. My brother's a wildlife biologist. So, so I have a very close connection to, to animals and I love looking at animals, you know, going to Yellowstone, checking out wolves, you know, bird watching, all that kind of thing. So, so I have a very close relationship to nature to where when I see these cases, I'm like, Oh, that person is is a piece of shit, right? That that penalty should be steeper, and it's kind of hard for for me to look at it from like an outside perspective. Um, but I guess like from your perspective, what percentage of these cases get prosecuted fairly to where the penalty is is probably what that person deserved, and which and what percentage is like. Either they got over-prosecuted or they got, in sounds like most cases, they got under-prosecuted. You know, 
I'm sure there's got to be a tiny, tiny percentage of cases that are over-prosecuted. Yeah. But uh, I, I go back to Ray Penny and tell you, he was one of those prosecutors that he felt so strongly about conservation. I would have somebody in his in his court, in his presence, that cooperated, give me a written confession, pleaded, said they were sorry, uh, were willing to pay the restitution, the, the, the statutory minimum of restitution. They were willing to pay the fine and cost. They, they didn't make me drag it out of them okay i mean they can people can make it harder make our job harder or they can say look i'm sorry i, I was stupid i made a mistake and and i i believe in rewarding cooperation i believe in saying look you know we all make mistakes i've done things wrong we've none of us are perfect and if you're willing to help me there uh, i'm willing to help you and so i've had to say ray ray no we we don't want to give this guy a week in jail you know, it, it 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 may say we can give him a, it, it, and and I don't I don't buck it if it said shall. If it says shall, it shall. But mm-hmm. when it's when it says and and or uh, fine and and jail time, I'll tell him no, no. You know, this guy did this, he did that, da 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 da. So I think most game wardens are conscientious and fair and recognize that if a guy is um, you know willing to help us out and learn a lesson and so forth. It's not about trying to draw blood, you know. It's about it's about just trying to educate somebody. And sometimes it takes more for some people to be educated, and sometimes it doesn't take as much. So uh, we pull a prosecutor off and say, no, you know, you don't need to hit them hit them so hard. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, I'm sure I'm sure that's happened. Yeah. But to get to your question, I would bet venture to say ten percent probably get the medicine they should get. Really, and wow, and, and and then. Uh, I would say probably, uh, you know, and we're talking about the, the guys that are guilty. We know they're guilty and, uh, you know, they go to court and that sort of thing. Um, and now keep in mind that 90 percent I'm talking about, that's the problems we have in the courts. That's the person that goes to the courts. Yeah. A person a person that, you know, and this is just my opinion, Ryan, and, and I know I'm tooting my horn here, but I will tell you. As I said a minute ago, a little bit ago, you know, I have a reputation for somebody who talks a lot, mm-hmm. and and I and I do, yeah, I know good. I do, yeah. I admit, I admit that I do. It's okay, good for it's, podcasts. It's, it's, well, it's who I am. Uh, I'm a blabbermouth. But now, when it comes to talking to a to a defendant, uh, I've been teased my whole career, and I've heard this about a few other game wardens. I would say out of a hundred game wardens, there's probably five guys that are like this. And and that small number are guys that want to talk to the poacher and want to understand the poacher and want to find common ground with the poacher and want to educate the poacher. Now, the other 95% say, you're full of crap. Yeah. Give him his ticket and let him go and get out of there. I mean, it's a hit and run. They want to sign here. Here's your ticket. It explains what you did wrong. Have a nice day. Yeah. And and if the guy is smart enough to read on there that he was supposed to appear on May 29 at 1 o'clock, you know, in room 301 of the courthouse, then he got in there and he took care of it. But if it if the game warden, you know, didn't explain it to him and he didn't catch that, maybe he even fails to appear at court and now he's got a warrant out for him. But I like to take, and it's my philosophy, that when a game warden has a violator in his sitting in his truck 
and I've got you right there where you and I can talk. This is my one opportunity for you and I to have some common ground. And I will take a great effort to try to get to know the man, him get to know me, him understand where I'm coming from, why the penalty is this, understand why he did what he did. And, you know, I can smell his bullshit and he can smell mine. It's a matter of us trying to say, look, let's understand each other. And right there, I'll determine if the guy is really just trying to blow BS or is the guy really contrite about what he did. And, and I'm trying, this is my one opportunity to have a one-on-one with a guy about conservation yeah. and what the game laws are about, what the regulations are for. Yeah, I know it sounds stupid. Yeah, I realize it's a, it's a damn rule. It's a pain in your butt and you've done it this way your whole life. And, and, and the rules say you can't this and that. And what, I'm going to explain to you why the biologists have set that rule that way. Yeah. And hopefully you understand. And, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for me to let him see that I'm not just a dick doing his job, okay? I'm trying to help him understand and him see I'm a man. I love to hunt and fish just like you do, and I am willing to talk about hunting and fishing with you, and I want to understand why you do what you did and why you did what you And so hopefully we can curtail that stuff. I have uh, 30-some years of experience working with the NWTF, doing banquets, doing all kinds of fundraiser stuff. And I got people on the committee that I've wrote tickets to before. Mm, really? Now you don't you don't have to come be on the committee with Carlos and 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 do Turkey Federation banquet crap with with Carlos because he wrote you a ticket 10 years ago. But people get to know people and and see that I'm a guy just like you are. I'm a deer hunter just like you are. I care about deer just like you do. I like big racks just like you do. Okay, we're we're a lot alike. But I understand the importance of the regulations, and so I want you to understand the importance of the regulations. So they get to they get to understand you as a person. They come to we come to respect each other more, and from that, I think guys learn a little bit more about conservation. Yeah. So. That's just that's just something that comes with with uh, talking a lot with a guy in the truck, and you know my fellow game wardens used to say, "Hey, if you ever want a confession, just lock a guy up in a truck with Carlos," <laughs> and, and, and the guy the guy will confess just so he can get away from all the yapping that he does. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's a good technique, right? No, that's I that's guess. all. And hey, that's that's the way it's supposed to be, right? I mean, you know, like. Same thing with kids. If you don't tell them why something is why it is, they're just going to do it again, right? So, right. what what, uh, what what did you find that most of the violations that you were writing people were were like first time offenders that it was just kind of an accident? Maybe they didn't read the regs, um, or or did you find a lot of repeat offenders that were you know kind of. Just outlaws, Oklahoma outlaws that were looking to break the law. You know, I wrote an article once uh, called 10% make up 90% of the trouble. Yeah. And that 10% of game violations are people that are really hardcore, dug in their ways, um, some of them do it because it's fun. Some of them do it because they're they're bucking the man. Some of them do it because 
they they got they got a bloodlust. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just like to kill stuff. And you know, those are the guys that you've heard that maybe just cut off horns or just cut back straps. And sometimes they don't do any of that. You know, I caught a guy once that uh, was a bad deer poacher. Him and his brother were bad deer poachers. And uh, if he couldn't find a deer to to shoot out the car window, he'd shoot a calf. Really? Wow. He just he just he just wanted to take the old high power, put the crosshairs on something, and and drop it. Man. And uh, you know, people don't realize huh. that. Not everybody that poaches is is just trying to feed their family. Some of them have got issues. Yeah, and 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 so you know, they're criminals. A lot of them are criminals, just plain outright criminals. There's no other way around it. They they may be doing drugs on the side. They have they have stolen merchandise that they're hiding for people. They're they're they're, they're doing all kinds of stuff. So game wardens, you know, a lot of a lot of search warrants and things on on a deer turn up all kinds of other stuff. Oh yeah, so. Oh. I'm sure. Um, I was just going to ask: Did you find that those people were often, you know, breaking other laws? Did they have? I'm sure a lot of them had warrants and stuff for other things. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that that that's that's common. And you were asking about the metropolitan area about the kind of stuff that game wardens get into. You know, um, I think everybody recognized game warden work can be dangerous. You're by yourself. You're off out in La La Land somewhere. Uh, you know, you may meet a criminal and, and he thinks he can kill you and get away with it because there's no witnesses. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in Tulsa County, in the metropolitan counties, uh, when I walk up to a convenience store, when I get out of my car at a convenience store, I'm wearing a suit with patches and a badge and guns. And, you know, do you think he's going to take the time to read if it says trooper or game warden before he decides he's going to yeah. shoot the guy whenever he's getting, he just robbed the store and he's walking out of the store or maybe, you know, he thinks I'm there to get him because he just did such and such at the store next door or whatever. So, you know, we're, we're more concerned probably in metropolitan areas of, of running into the wrong character. Uh, and, and he's just, he's just killing you because he thinks you're a cop. Yeah. And you know you're 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 there to get him. So we have to watch out for that a lot in the metropolitan area. The the rural guys have to watch out for the bad guy just because you know he's out there in La La Place. Yeah, you can never get found. Um, yeah, yeah, that that's scary. Um, just back, I wanted to ask a question just about the maybe some of the serial poachers that you experienced in your career. I know it was probably work and it was what you were doing and I'm sure there was probably a, uh, a fear aspect there just because these are people that probably have a lot of guns, right? And um, they're dangerous people. They've obviously killed things before. Um, but was it ever fun like trying to find a serial poacher and like trying to catch them in the act of it? Did you ever have fun doing that? You know, um I, I'd be I'd probably be being dishonest if I didn't say it wasn't satisfying. It, it, yeah. it can be gr- very satisfying. I won't say it's fun. Uh, yeah, maybe satisfying have, was the word I was looking I, for. I, I have one case that comes to mind, and, and I won't go through I've told the story many times, and so I won't drag you through all the details of the story, but the overview of the story is this. The guy was a serial poacher, and... Uh, he he got he got ratted out by one of his church buddies, uh, 
and his church buddy who bowling league with him, church worship, husband and wife, double dated husband and wife, hunted together, fished together, constantly was asking his friend to please not do that. Please stop. You know it's wrong. Please stop. And the guy just continued to poach and kill stuff. And his buddy, who was always trying to stop him, finally hit the breaking point. And he calls and he tells on his friend. And now all I know when I get the call is that the guy poached a deer this morning. It was gun season, but he shot it out the car window. He shot it off the road. He shot it on private property right next to a posted sign. And he knows that he's killed several deer already this season. He's, he's way over the limit. So I'm not trying to get him for all the deer he's got. I'm not trying to get him for all the, he probably did some turkey, he probably did some deer. I'm just trying to get him about on a deer he did today. Mm-hmm. And I did do you, my did, leg- you, did you know that he was, like, was he on your radar before this call? You know, yes and no. He wasn't on my radar to the extent that I knew everything about who this guy was and I was hunting this guy. He wasn't on my radar. Okay. He was on my radar from the extent that I knew he worked at, at this uh, airline factory and I got lots of calls from his co-workers at the airline factory that said, this jerk kiss keeps bragging about all the deer he's poaching. He brags all the time. He's killing all these deer. He's showing pictures off and we're sick of it. And he's such a braggart and we wish you'd catch him. So I knew that there was a guy and I knew his nickname and this sort of thing. And there were guys that would tell me little bits and pieces, but nobody had specifics. All they mm. had was he bragged all the time. Yeah. Well, this this guy, this good friend of his from church, had the specifics. Okay. He told me where the deer was getting processed. He told me when and where it was killed. Um, he told me that he knew his buddy had done it and so forth. And that he told me where I'd find the evidence. Okay. So... I gathered the evidence. I spent the whole day gathering the evidence on this one deer. It was a monster whitetail and, uh, you know, a nice trophy for somebody that had been poached. So now I've got the evidence. And this this all started in the morning, like, you know, five, six in the morning, uh, right at daylight when I get the call, whenever that was, maybe seven in the morning. But the bottom line is it's 10 o'clock at night. And I have been running all over two or three counties, chasing down leads, gathering information. Now it's about 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, and I'm pulling up to the guy's house, the bad mm. guy. And I'm pulling in his driveway. Yeah. And as I'm pulling in his driveway, I call him up on the phone. I had his phone number from his buddy. And I call him up, and I said, hey, I just came from such and such processors, and I got all the information about the deer that you turned in over there. And I know this, and I know that. And I gave him my whole spiel about everything that I knew. And and I'm really paraphrasing this long deal. And I said, look, here's the deal. Here's the fine. Here's the, the cost. Here's the restitution. I know there's other stuff, but I'm just telling you this. If you'll confess, sign a plea of guilty, you're going to have a payment plan at the courthouse. And I'm just asking you to stop poaching, and we'll leave it at this. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to clarify for him the penalties. And then he said, I can't afford that. That's too much. Mm. And I said, you can't afford not to do this. 
This is the best deal I can offer you. This is the minimum. And you need to take this. About that time, I pull up in his driveway, and he sees the headlights, and I see a guy looking at me on a on a phone through the kitchen window, through the through the picture window, and he's he says, "Is that you in my driveway?" And I said, "Yeah, that's me. I see you in there talking." So I came to see you. Why don't you come out here and sit in my truck? Let's fill out this paperwork and be done with this. I go home. You stay home. Nothing else happens. That's the end of this deal. And you know you've got a you've got a about a month before you go to court, and then you'll get they'll give you six ten months to pay it off. Yeah. And he said, I, I I just can't I can't afford it. And I said, Well, you gotta you gotta think about this and, and do the smart thing. I said, uh, It's it's way worse if you don't do it. Yeah. And and I said, If you don't do it, there's going to be a lot of other stuff that's going to come along with this and. And I don't really want to do that, but you're, you're going to force my hand. And he said, well, you're just going to have to do it that way if that's the way mm-hmm. you want to do it. So I ended up taking literally about three months. And, I, you know, I'm no different than you. If you had your choice of doing a bunch of paperwork and a whole bunch of running around and digging in bullshit and digging up reports and files and, and, and all kinds of records and crap, or if you had a choice just to go look at a trout stream and and admire the girls in their bikini sunbathing out there and checking a few fishing licenses and 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 talking to hunters and 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 eating barbecue which would you rather do probably the latter <laughs> and i told him that i told him that and he said well you're just going to have to do it the other way cuz he said that's too much i can't afford it he didn't say i didn't do it he just he said, said that's, that's yeah. too much i can't afford it and so in long story short I ended up getting a warrant for his arrest, and he got cuffed right there at his workplace in front of everybody that knows him. Mm. And uh, he got booked into three different county jails, and he had to sit on his handcuffs all the way. And then as soon as he got bonded out of one, he got picked up and transferred to the other one. And then he got to pay his attorney to do all this defense and stuff. And he told me he was mad at me when he was getting handcuffed at work and he said, I know why you're doing this. You're just doing this because you are mean. You just enjoy it. You just want to, you just want to humiliate me. And I said, no, we had that conversation. Yeah. And you said, this is how you wanted it done. He said, you could have called me. I would have met you somewhere. I said, I did call you. I was in your driveway. How far do you want me to come to meet me? And, 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 you know, he, he wanted me to go to all that trouble and then come calling to him again. And I said, look, when the court issues a warrant for your arrest, that means take you to the court. And I explained that to you that night. I told you that I was going to have to take you to jail if you made me do it that way. And you told me to do it. Now, in that case, I had satisfaction from finally taking the guy to get his medicine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I won't say that I enjoyed it. I really didn't, but I, but I did have satisfaction that he got his justice and, uh, you know, he, he later went straight, I think. And, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of that case. Probably didn't end up sitting on the board of, uh, NWTF though, right? No, (laughs) no, he, he did. He, he, he actually didn't. Okay. Well, so so I want to kind of switch gears here. That's that's fascinating. I, I I'm always very interested to hear from game wardens, just because that was something that I had in my younger years considered myself. You know, I I read Wildlife Wars. I'm not sure if you've ever read that book. Sure. But oh it's yeah. A classic. You know, game warden book. 
and I was like, oh man, that looks that looks so awesome. But you know, life life brought me other places, and right. so I'm always curious to hear about you know game warden stories. But um, I, I kind of wanted to wanted to switch gears here um, to something just a little bit different. Um, and you had emailed me. We were talking about kind of possible subjects and topics to talk about, um, and you had said. You do, however, have a passion for mentoring dads on doing better than I did when I raised my kids. I call the topic, are you training up your future family? Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? And, and I absolutely just, do. I, yeah. uh, Ryan, I really appreciate you cutting to that and giving me the opportunity to talk on that. Um, you know, I have two daughters and they're both grown and, and they have kids of their own and, um, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't tell the truth and say, my kids don't hunt hardly at all. They don't care about hunting at all. Um, and, and I take total responsibility for that. Yeah. I was busy being selfish. I was busy uh, worrying about hunting myself, worrying about enjoying things, worrying about my job, worrying about all the things that brought me uh, um, uh, the instant gratification as opposed to the investment in seeing your kids and your grandkids have a passion for conservation hunting and that those sort of things that you're going to want to enjoy with those kids in your later years if you'll invest now. But a lot of guys, I'm afraid, aren't investing like they should. And I can kind of... Um, I can kind of give you a, a, a quicker version of, of how I feel about this by telling you about a conversation with a good friend of mine. I have a very good friend that is a super sharp guy. He's on my NWTF committee. Nice. And he, he has two daughters that are about eight and ten years old. Now, you know, I think there's a lot of girls out there that probably say, I bet my dad wishes I was a boy. And I bet there's a lot of dads out there that are pretty tickle pink that they've got a son and they like to go hunt with their son. And maybe their daughter likes to go shopping with their mom or do whatever they like to do together. But there's a lot of daughters that like to hunt with their uh, dads and their moms. And there's a lot of that uh, that I think, you know, we don't need to go into. Those are people I think that are obviously balanced in how they apply their their outdoor education to their daughters and sons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, generally speaking, generally speaking, most dads are pretty good about taking their sons hunting and teaching them and 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 spending that time with them and having that bond that you want to have with your young man as he grows up and you hunt together and that sort of thing. And and I envy those guys. I think that's great those guys that have that opportunity. But the thing that gets overlooked a lot is the girls. Mm -hmm. um, and, and before I go to the girls, I'll tell you real quick. I have a son-in-law that uh, that I've hunted with. He hunts a little bit, and and my daughter, his wife, hunts a little bit. Not not as much as I wish they did, but they do hunt a little bit. And I have a grandson, and he he's nine, and he's asking about hunting and wanting to learn to shoot a bow. And he got a bow for his birthday, and he you know he's in the Cub Scouts, and he wants to know about more of that stuff. And they live a long ways from me, so I don't get to spend a lot of mentoring time with him. But but I do try to encourage that as much as I can. But that father literally had a stepdad his his dad died when he was young and my, so my son-in-law grew up under the roof of a stepfather and he told me 
that his stepdad would literally take his stepbrothers, in other words, the man would take his own sons, and they would go hunting regularly. And he didn't get to go. Really? He was, for whatever reason, he got left at home. Wow. And he said he always wanted to go, wished he could go, but they said, no, there's just not room. This is all that we got room for, and that's all. And the guy didn't take the stepson. So, you know, I really, really sympathize with anybody that grows up feeling like a stepson, right? Mm-hmm. We've, been, we've heard about getting beat like a stepchild. Well, that was a stepson that really, to this day, age 40, carries some resentment and some 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 scars, emotional yeah. scars from being treated like a stepchild when it was time to go hunting. But back to the people with a girl. Uh, my buddy was telling me how, you know, his daughters don't really get excited about the stuff. He likes to hunt. He's got a deer head he puts on the wall and they, they kind of wrinkle their nose at it. And they don't understand, and and he likes to go fishing, but his daughters don't really think about the fishing too much. They don't, and he was putting it off on them, like how they didn't really have a bug for it, right? They didn't mm-hmm. take to it and stuff. And I explained it to him this way: I said, "You need to realize something, Jeff. In ten short years, and ten years from now, it'll happen like a flash. They won't be ten and eight; they will be twenty and eighteen. And in that time, they will be busy chasing boys. They'll be all into everything about the opposite sex, like all the young folks are. And they will be pursuing and enjoying their time out in life, finding a mate. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what the deal is with the mate. The mate is who they're going to spend their life with. But now, when they spend their life with that mate, and when they have children your grandchildren, you're going to want to spend time with your grandchildren. You're going to want to spend time maybe with your son-in-law. You're going to want to maybe have a hunting partner in in a son-in-law and a grandchild. But are they going to be more into playing tennis or golf? Are they going to be more into just reading books and going, uh, you know, doing all kinds of (laughs) who knows what? Uh, balloon, uh, hot air balloon racing or something. What are they <laughs> yeah. going to be doing that's not what you would like to share with them? You have a passion for the wildlife heritage, for hunting, for conservation, for spending time outdoors, that bonding experience. I said, if you'll take your daughters right now and spend that effort to make them understand what dad loves and how dad loves it and try to get them to experience a little of it, I said, they will be, and listen to me like I'm uh, Dr. Phil or something here. I, I, I don't claim to have my, my degree on all this, but this is my philosophy and my belief that I'm telling you. I said, they will be, in a way, molded to instinctively look for a spouse that maybe does some things outdoors. Yeah, yeah. Now, you're going to have a grandson that might have activities outdoors, and you'll have a son-in-law that maybe has activities outdoors, and you'll have an opportunity to have a life in your later years, starting in 10 years or beyond, with with a family that mm-hmm. likes the outdoors. So uh, I, I really paraphrased a long conversation there with this friend, but the point is 
it, it made a light bulb go off for him. And I have since seen him take his daughters to the deer stand. He's got a little daughter that has now killed her first deer. Um, you know, he likes, you know, he makes it fun. He takes them on hunts that not where they're going to freeze to death. He takes yeah. them on hunts, you know, where, where they're going to get to see some cool stuff. Maybe they don't even kill a deer, but they see deer running around them and they love it, you know? And so, yeah. um, the whole point is if you'll invest in your family and your kids, it'll come back to you later. If you don't invest you will not reap anything from that as well. So uh, that's that's my that's my pitch on that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so with your daughters, do you think that they didn't develop a keen interest for hunting because you didn't take them as much as you should have, or was it because when you did take them, it was you know maybe a lack of patience, right? You were hands got cold i know when i was a kid you know my hands always your hands always get cold you're always complaining you're always moving when you're little you know that's just how it is did yeah. you think it was it was more of that or was it just do you think if you would have just taken them more that they would have developed a keener interest i i, I really uh, i hate hate to sound like i'm hedging my bets here but it's both it really yeah. is both you've really got to take them a lot uh and try to make it fun and uh, as, as far as making it interesting for them, I would tell you, I said, I have a daughter that doesn't hunt at all. And I have a daughter that um, that hunts a little bit. And the daughter that hunts a little bit, here's how I messed up on that. When I took her, and this was things, you know, that come to me after, after messing up and realizing how I could have, should have done it a little bit better or different. When I took her hunting, Typically, she's with dad, and dad is hunting. Right. I'm the guy with the bow. Yeah. She's, she's just there observing. So which is more fun? Is it more fun to play Frisbee where you throw the Frisbee back and forth, or is it more fun to sit there and be a third person and watch two people throw a Frisbee back and forth? So she was, she, was just a, she was just a bystander sitting in a deer stand, and that gets old pretty quick. Yeah. You know, if you're not a participant, it's not near as much fun. So that's why getting them out of the grandstands and getting them down on the playing field is pretty important when you're trying to introduce your youngster. It don't matter if they hit or miss. It doesn't matter, you know, you know, every kid grew up carrying a stick as his first gun, a BB gun with no BBs, maybe a BB gun with a few BBs, and so on. Every kid grew up getting to participate in some way. But if you don't even get to be a hunter and be in the game at all, you don't get a taste of what it's like to be in pursuit and to try to harvest and to succeed. You don't get any of that satisfaction. So the kid ends up, you know, getting kind of bored with it and says, well, okay, I've watched it. Yeah, I saw a deer. Yeah, I saw you see a deer. Um, you know, and they, they just don't get as much from it. So, you know, when you take a kid out, that's why it's so important that you get them a gun that doesn't recoil too hard. That's why you try to get them a bow that they can draw. That's why you try to not only teach them about the stuff, but you let them have some of the fun and 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 make it interesting and fun for them. And, of course, you got to take them a lot more often because you want them to um, develop a bond with the natural beauty and, and the things that you see. How many times have you been outdoors and you went, oh, man, if my, if my wife was only here to see that, 
You know, and it, I, I've had an eagle just pass overhead so low while I was in a tree stand that I could hear the wings, you know, I could hear the air uh, passing through the feathers of an eagle, no. that the bald eagle that just went overhead. You saw this giant cl- uh, cloud of a, of a shadow pass, zip past you. You look up and there's a bald eagle and you see their head looking around below and you're like, oh, I can see the... I can see the color of his eyes, and yeah. there's no one there sharing that with you. So they've got to see those things and experience those special things, and and that comes from being there more often. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And I guess to bring it kind of full circle, um, a good way to get your kids involved, which is how I got involved, was um, was to put your kid under a G and H Magnum goose shell. And and let them play yeah. uh, play uh, goose retriever for a while. That's that was my early experience as a hunter. My we we had a lab, but you know it was a smaller lab, and he was getting old. So I ended up playing the the retriever. Right. But my dad would just put me under a, a G and H Magnum goose shell and uh, yeah. go retrieve the geese. But well, life is a game. Life is a game. And it's a game of winning and losing. And, and, and I'm a competitive person, so I'm just giving you my characterization of how we go through life. And you can choose to not play. You can choose to sit. You can choose to do. And you can choose to win or you can choose to not care. And, and it's your choice. But, you know, if you take a kid and you make, it, you make hunting a game and you make everything fun and you let them play in the game, and you let let that be something that they succeed in, whether it's retrieving a goose or whatever, you know. Um, it, it, it's just, a, I think, you know, I can, I can visualize what you're describing to me, and it just sounds like it would be a blast, right? Yeah. To, yeah. to be there, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, you might be able to hear your dad say, stay still, stay still, you know, here they come. And you're just getting excited. Maybe you're peeking through a hole in the decoy, you know, and you're trying to see what's coming. And here they come. And now all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And birds start dropping. And, you know, it's time for you to, for Ryan to bust out there and go run something down. I mean, that sounds like fun to me. So yep. it's it's one of those things where I think if, if you share in that fun with your kids, whatever the fun is, then, uh, you know, it's going to be great memories. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important for you to be, you know, kind of pushing that message of, of how you learned almost like what not to do. Right. And, and how I'm sure you, you don't regret it. Well, I'm sure you might regret it a little bit, but I'm sure you still love your daughters and, and there's still so many fun times that you had, but you know, that's always something that especially a hunter thinks about, right. Is, is like being able to pass on such a th- a thing that depends on being passed on right like hunting is a is a hobby that depends on having somebody teach somebody else how to do it and i think that's always it's something that we all look forward to right i don't have kids yet but that's something that i definitely you know that's one of my main reasons for wanting to have kids right is to is to pass on this legacy that I've learned from my dad. He learned from his dad. It's just like this whole hereditary thing. So it's right. um, it's very important, I think, for you to be kind of pre- passing that message on of, you know, what, what you kind of learned. 
Right. Well, and and I'll just I'll just correct you on one thing you said. It's a hobby, and 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 it can be a hobby, but um, to me, you know, there's a variety of hobbies like uh, gun collecting and ammo reloading and learning to be a good caller and. Uh, learning how to hide yourself in the woods. I mean, how many people play capture the flag or or some kind of hide and seek or whatever out in the woods when you were a kid growing up? You know, being able to do those things were all uh, fun games that prepared you for for later challenges and skills in life. So, to me, it's more than a hobby. It's more than just yeah. a collection of hobbies. It's a culture, yeah. and it's a lifestyle. And you know kids don't realize that it's a culture and a lifestyle. It might just seem like a pastime. It might just seem like a, 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 a thing that, that dad likes to do or mom, mom does. It's something that, uh, you know, that they just seem to be uh, enjoying doing. But they need to realize, and they do realize it, I think, in time. It takes time. It takes, it takes many years of maturity to realize this is a lifestyle it's a cultural thing. It's my culture, and it's something that I want to pass on. So it's it's not just a hobby I want to pass on. You know, yeah. it's 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 deeper than that, and that's where I get culture and and lifestyle from. That's a good point, and I mean, it's all it's conservation, right? It's it's teaching conservation. It's teaching why you can't just go out and shoot, you know, four Drake pintails. It's it's teaching why. You know, there's certain seasons that you got to hunt and, you know, it's, it's, it's about repainting decoys. It's about, you know, cleaning your gun, uh, during the off season after your last shoot and it's the whole thing. So that's, that's very well said for sure. You know, one thing, one thing, Ryan, that I want to emphasize about regulations and, and I didn't mean to, you know, hijack the discussion about game wardens and all that so much, but, um, uh, the message that I try to impart to young people and, and old people who will listen, and there's a lot of them that won't listen, and I say they won't listen because they've got their mind made up. Uh, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations. They have their ideas about why and what things are, but a lot of young people, like you were saying earlier, say, but why? Why is it this way? Why is it that way? Why is it this many birds? Why is it this many deer? Why is it this method? Why is it not this method? And so on. The why is in the hunting regulations. Now, here's why it's in the hunting regulations. Here's why it is a regulation. And I tell them that, you know, every team has a playbook. If you're a basketball team, football team, I don't care what team you are, you have a playbook. And on that team, in that playbook, it talks about what the quarterback does and what the blockers do and what the receiver does and what the defense does and on and on and on, right? Everybody has a very important role in the game. So that playbook outlines what each person's role is. And if that person drops the ball and doesn't fulfill their role, then somebody smashes the quarterback or what have you and something goes wrong. Well, I tell the kids that in wildlife conservation, and a lot, of, a lot of sportsmen don't realize this, that populations will always go up and down. Now, we all know that there's a lot more rabbits 
in the spring than there is in the dead of winter, right? <clears throat> the rabbit population is exploding. The babies are being born. There's lots of rabbits. Well, when there's lots of rabbits, there starts to be more coyotes. And when there's, and this is a super simplification, with more coyotes, they start to eat rabbits. There starts to become fewer rabbits. And when there starts to become fewer rabbits, the coyotes either have to go find something else to eat or there becomes fewer coyotes. So there's this constant oscillation from winter to summer in population. Now, while that is oscillating, the trend is either trending up or trending down. It's, it's oscillating upward or oscillating downward. And that may happen over the course of five to ten years. That big oscillation goes on. The biologists and all the research and all the studies figure out, try with their best estimates to, to tell us what the trend is for a particular species in a particular time in, in, in the year, in the season, and so what it's going to be. And so they know that we're trending upwards so we can have more rabbits harvested this year. Than, than normal, or we need to have fewer rabbits. So the bottom line to it is those estimates, those margins are reflected in changing regulations every year because mm -hmm. the, the rabbit population isn't going to stay the same every year, and I'm using rabbits and coyotes, but you get my point. So no. we're not going to have the exact same conditions for waterfowl, for nesting, for rainfall, for uh, predators, for all the different factors. We're not going to have the same every year. It's not going to be the same. And it can't be the same limit for decades upon decades as those populations change. So we need to be willing to do our part in the playbook. Mm -hmm. And our role as hunters, we're the management method, unlike fire, unlike forestry, uh, you know, unlike tilling the ground or, or, or whatever else might be done to manage habitat, we're the one factor that has a brain and that can be uh, adjusted and we can increase or we can do more gun season or shorter gun season and, and more of this and less of that and more harvest, less harvest. We can do those things to help manage populations in our regions specific and that's what conservation is. It's us playing our part in the role that the that the playbook dictates that we do. So you should you should trap. You should hunt as many things as you can hunt. And obviously, the waterfowl license, the the special duck uh, stamps in your state, the the federal stamps, the hunting licenses, those are all things that are paying for the management programs. You're not getting it from from the, the little old lady that's got bird feeding binoculars in her backyard watching songbirds, you're not getting it from her, okay? The money's coming from the hunters. So those guys need to be involved. They need to buy those licenses. They need to be participants, not be on the, on the bleachers watching, you know, from the stands. So anyway, got me wound up there. No, hey, I, I, I like that analogy, uh, Everybody does have to, to play their part. And I mean, it's there's a reason why there's a limit. Well, some places there's not a limit, but there's a reason why coyotes are managed. There's a reason why rabbits are managed. There's a reason why ducks are managed. It's all, it all plays into the same thing. And, and game wardens are, are a big part of that in enforcing that um that playbook you guys are you guys are like the offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator 
calling the plays out there. (laughs) I like that. I like that, Ryan, and I appreciate that because, you know, really, uh, the Department of Wildlife out there in all those states, (coughs) the game wardens, we want everybody to hunt. And that's one of the reasons for game laws. We want there to be a sharing of the of the harvest. We want there to be a rabbit out there for somebody else. We don't want one guy taking all the rabbits. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the other is safety. Safety is a big concern. We don't want people, you know, trying to shoot ducks out of a moving boat. And that's how somebody ends up uh, having an accident doing something. So some of the rules are safety related. Some of them are share the harvest related. Uh, but ultimately, the bottom line of all of that is we want to make sure that there's a future for those species, for all those future generations that we all want to share the, the heritage with. Yeah. Well, Carlos, I think uh, I think that's a pretty good way to end the, uh, the conversation here. Um, I, I really appreciate you jumping on. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, unless there's anything else that you want to touch on, I think I'm good. You know, I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to visit with you guys, and um, I'll just close with this, and this is my plug for GNH Decoy. Um, there's a lot of great decoys out there, a lot of great companies, and um, many of them contribute to Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, and other uh, conservation-related things. But just keep this in mind, the profits for companies that have their products made in China are not watching out for our outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, GNH feels very uh, uh, strongly about trying to preserve uh, our habitats and support our conservation programs. And we have our products made 100% right here in the U.S. of A. with American workers, uh, with American equipment, American paint, American plastic. And uh, so we're proud of that fact that we're made in America. And so you might not think GNH decoy is the prettiest decoy or maybe they're not the cheapest decoy, but you'll find that uh, they last longer than anybody else's decoy. And uh, it's the kind of decoy that you'll pass down to your grandchildren or perhaps you received yours from your grandfather. So that heritage connection with GNH, um, which, of course, started in 1934, is uh, where we come from uh, with, our, with our outreach to conservation. Hey, and I can attest to that because I, I – and they work. I can attest to that as well um, because I have – uh my first set of and i think i was telling you this at bha and i told ray this but my first set of decoys that i ever got was gnh my dad i want to say my dad might have even given them to me um but i mean we've always had you know gnh decoys in our deck spread obviously the goose spread um but they work i think they look great they're super light um more on that to come because we're going to be hopefully testing that fact this this uh fall with possibly a a, a backcountry duck hunt where me and ray were talking about and shoot we'd love to have you come along too um but yeah so i'm i'm all in with with what y'all are doing and um i, I hope anybody listening to this if you're looking at getting a new spread um look at gnh because they are 
there's some quality decoys not just saying that you guys obviously don't pay us or anything like that but i can i can speak from personal use they're, yeah. they're a great solid decoy well, i appreciate that check check them out on the website they got a new website and uh a hundred dollars or more is free shipping and and uh you know it's it's a, a quick easy way to add to your spread if you're if you've got decoys you know and you want to add a few i think uh, that's what i like about the gnh they the heads turn so you can sure change the look of them real easy and yep. and uh they're they're really well done in my opinion anatomically and all that sort of thing so i think they uh, are a great addition to anybody's waterfowl spread definitely well thank you very much carlos appreciate you you bet ryan uh, appreciate you we'll have to have to jump on maybe during duck season and and uh round up with you and see what's going on okay well we appreciate you uh having the visit with us and look forward to future times we have a chance to visit yes sir you have a good one